Okay, we're still in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to finish the rest of the Beatitudes today, which you honestly, you honestly could take one week for each one of these, and you probably wouldn't completely cover everything. You could probably preach three sermons on each one of these, and you could and you'd have plenty of material throughout Scripture because these things are so foundational to the message that Jesus is delivering. But, that being said, I have ADD. So I move quickly through things. It's like, alright, we talked about that. Let's move on. We talked about but I think, I think in looking at these less as individual little commands and trying to see how these, how these thoughts all tie together, I think it's going to be really important for us and... and and for most of, for many of us, for those of us especially who have been here since CRC started, what, three years ago, man, three years ago, when we were going through Acts, we're going to talk about some things that are going to be very familiar if you were here during our study in Acts. Hopefully, they're very familiar. Hopefully, you haven't, you know, just, just moved on from the things that we've taught in the past and said, well, this is what we're learning right now. Anyways, so, question, what's the, the most expensive Check. Do we write checks anymore? What's the most expensive payment in any form? Either Apple Pay. No, none of who actually uses Apple Pay. Really? No, no one. No one actually uses Apple Pay. Anyways, so what's the most expensive payment that you can remember making, or or even the most painful payment that you've ever had to make? I remember we used to own a Mazda Tribute. You know, you know, God bless Mazda. I'm sure they make some fine automobiles, but this tribute was not the one that that really makes you be like, I want another one of those. We tried to get a, a, a good deal, and we got a good deal, but it turns out when you get a good deal, there might be some things that are broken, and sometimes you have to replace whole engines in Mazda tributes, and you have to write... We didn't have to replace it the second time. We sold it before we had to replace the engine the second time. But I remember writing the check for like $5,000 or something that we had to pay to replace this engine. And I remember thinking, man, this is expensive. This, this costs a lot. This is kind of, this is kind of, it's kind of painful to write that many digits, right? Uh, so, so what's the most expensive? Th- think about it. We, we all have different things. What are, what are some of the, the big Things that you have paid for at some point in life. And I will preface this by saying, not all of them are going to be painful. Some of them, you'll be like, it was absolutely worth writing that check. I was trying to think, what are the, what are the good things that we've written checks for? Well, we recently wrote a, a check for a new roof for this building. And that was a, yeah, you can clap, one of you. One of you's excited that it's raining outside, but it's not in here. Like, I see no standing water anywhere in this building, and that's a miracle that only God could have done. (laughs) Because you should have seen the check that we had to write to pay for the roof. It's like, I don't even know, like, you learn it in elementary school. You learn how to write, you know, to the 10,000th digit, like write it out in words, and where do the hyphens go, and where do the commas go, and all that. Like, you don't do that much after, you know, fifth grade, you know? So it's like you write it. We're right. It's like, is that how it's supposed to look when you write a check for whatever it was? It was like eleven thousand dollars or something. For and that was just for half. Now we get to do that again. We get the joy of writing that check one more time. But but that's an okay expense. Like it's like that's a lot of money. 
but we're excited to see what God's doing with that money. I could get all sappy and say that even though I spent lots of money when I bought a wedding ring, that was a worthwhile expense, right? Or, or, or when you buy a house, or when you buy a car that your confidence is actually going to you know, continue to work for a long time. Or when you book a vacation to a place that you're really excited to get to go with your family or something. It's like, these, these are big expenses, but, but not all expenses are just painful and leave you feeling this kind of icky feeling like you've just wasted lots of your, your money or whatever, right? But, but, but some things, when you invest in them, they have this kind of long-term joy that they bring with them, and it's, and it's absolutely worth the expense. It's worth the cost. It's worth the emptying out of your bank account or the just emptying out of something that you've been holding on to to get that long-term thing. And I think that that idea is kind of where, as we continue through this list of, of teachings that, that Jesus is beginning this long sermon with, last week he kind of talked about the humble state that we are in. And we looked at the sick and the broken and the weary and the, and the people who are being you know, overwhelmed by, by demonic attack. And Jesus is, those are the sorts of people that he's not shying away from, but he's going after those are the people that he's, he's fixing. Those are the people that he's making whole. And this week, as we continue on through the list, I think there's this kind of similar theme of the people who are following Christ, right? The, the, his disciples. Because we talked about these two different audiences that are here. We've got crowds. We've got people who don't really know him, but are hearing the message. He's, he's kind of preaching it over them. And then they're his disciples, the people that he's actually providing some very specific instruction to. And, and what we're going to see this week, I think, is that if you are a disciple of Christ, not only do you recognize that, that He came to you in your weakness, He came to you in your brokenness, but, but the life that you're now going to live is one where you're going to continually be emptying yourself out, continually being broken, maybe even having yourself broken more for the sake of the gospel. And, and hopefully what we're going to see is for the sake of a greater long-term joy, a greater long-term satisfaction than maybe you would feel if you held on to the things that you could have right now. So that's where we're going. So let's go ahead and jump back into Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to go ahead and read all of the verses, and I'll start at the beginning of the chapter just to kind of give us context, just so we get the whole idea. And then we'll just kind of start picking these things off one by one. So chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So the first thing, so we got through verse 4 last week, so we're picking up right here in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This characteristic of meekness, I think, kind of sets up the idea that I'm hoping we can kind of stay focused on through the rest of the list. This idea of humility. I remember the first time I heard the word meek, I was probably five or six years old, and I was in a play at King's Chapel Presbyterian Church in Carrollton, Georgia. I got, I, I was given the role of King Josiah in a play called Good Kings Come in Small Packages. <laughs> and I remember my big power ballad that I got to sing. You remember this, right? Make me a servant, humble and meek. That's the first time. I still didn't know what the word meant at the time, but that's what they told me to sing. Because it's, make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. It's amazing that I remember these things. But I do. There's probably video somewhere at my parents' house of me wearing a felt crown with little plastic jewels all stuck all over it so I look really royal. Really, really intimidating king. And I remember, but I was thinking about this last night. That's the first time I remember hearing this word meek. What is meek? Well, if you, if you listen to the lyrics of that song, then it's setting meek apart from the word weak. Let me be meek and lift up those who are weak. So, so these words can't be the same thing. Because sometimes if you hear the word meekness, you think, oh, they're, they're just being weak. They're just going to be kind of, kind of trampled over. They're just going to kind of let the world walk all over them. And, and I think... And I think Jesus is very clearly, throughout the rest of his ministry, going to demonstrate what meekness looks like, though he was never weak. Right? He was, he was humble. He had a servant's heart. He was, he was willing to, in a sense, prefer others. He was, not, he was not going to puff himself up and make himself dominate over the people around him, even though he had every right to, even though he had perfect knowledge of the Word of God, and even though he had not sinned, and even though he had every reason to say, look at me, I'm amazing, and you guys are terrible, which he did on occasion. He didn't present himself as this this domineering presence. He served the people that he was around, and he, and he, he humbled himself to... I mean, you could even go so far as to say just by the fact that he was walking on earth, he has already humbled himself by leaving heaven and coming down and walking around amongst the sinners. And so what he's saying is, we shouldn't be the type of people who have this over-assertive, this this strong-willed nature that that is is based on dominating our opponents. And we're going to kind of see that throughout the rest of this list. Those are the people who will inherit the earth. It's a spirit of gentleness that can be found in the people of God. I think one of the things that I want us to continue to ask ourselves as we look through this list is, is that me? Is that the general perception of the church and the culture that I live in? Are we known for our gentleness? Are we known for our humility as we humbly serve the people that we are tasked with taking the gospel to? Is that the sense that the world gets from us? 
when they see how we live our lives. And again, it doesn't mean that we're compromising our beliefs. It doesn't mean that we allow evil to take place without speaking out against it. But the way in which we present ourselves, the way in which that message is delivered, Jesus is saying, is vital. And it reveals who he is and aspects of what he looks like and how he would have us live. But what he says here, look at this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This kind of language is pointing towards the end when Jesus is is present physically and ruling and reigning over creation. And he's saying, if you are one of my people, you are going to have a part in ruling and reigning along with me over all of creation. You will inherit the earth. And I don't think we fully understand how big a deal that is. Basically, what we're saying, because we said that we're going to read this later, uh, uh, people, disciples of Christ are going to be like the sons of God. They're adopted into the family of God. We get the same inheritance that Jesus is getting. We get to be rulers over the, all of creation, just like God had established at creation when He said, you guys have dominion over all of my creation. You guys take care of this. He's saying, you're going to get that level of authority handed to you from God. So don't try to go take it for yourself now. That's going to be a theme that we're going to continue to see as we move forward. Don't go try to take that authority for yourself now. Be humble. Be gentle. And you're going to get all of those things. Let's go ahead and move on. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Caleb got to talk about Jesus fasting for 40 days. And I love the verse that it says, and then he went and fasted for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, he was hungry. Like, that, that verse, I, I love how simplistic it describes that. Because, like, I haven't eaten yet today. Just today. Like, I ate a bunch yesterday. Because we went to a birthday party. I had some cake, and it was good. But I ate a bunch yesterday. I just haven't eaten today. And already I'm starting to get a little grumpy. Right? Like, like I'm like, all right, we got pasta and salad coming up later. This is going to be good. I'm hungry. We can eat. He went 40 days, and it just says, and he was hungry. Yeah, you think, right? Like, I would, like, I would, like one day is enough for me. Much less, much less 40. But he sent, he, he, he was sent out, he was led out by God for 40 days to fast So that he could be tempted by Satan. He was basically taking 40 days to prepare himself for this encounter with Satan. His, his, you know, mortal enemy that he's going to do battle against. And also, he's prepared, it's like the last trial that he has to go through before he enters into the active period of ministry that he's going into. And I think it's interesting that instead of having food, he's more interested in being prepared for what's to come. Right? Which seems to be perfectly echoed in what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's saying, you're being hungry for the wrong thing. If you are hungry for holiness, if you are hungry for the will of God to take place, that will happen. You will be satisfied with what you are hungry for. If, you, if we, as the church, are, are so passionate about seeing the will of God done... Spoiler, 
his will is always done. Like he always gets what he wants. He's God. It's his will. It's what's happening. So if we want what he wants, we're going to be really, really happy with the results. That's part one of that. Part two, in there is also implied this idea of seeking justice on behalf of those who cannot fight for themselves. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. You know, a couple weeks ago, I, I took a long time to talk about how, how the mindset in our country has changed so dramatically so that abortion is a thing that is not only assumed as going to take place, but encouraged. And I said, it's our job as the church to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, including the unborn, including... Uh, I was, when I was reading this, I was thinking of um, Passion and Louis Giglio. They're really um, high on ending global slavery right now, fighting against sex trafficking, all of these things that are present, not only in, in, in countries not our own, but happen even in Johnson City. Like, I have, I've recently, I've been hearing more and more, I've seen more and more, you know, documentation saying, it happens here too, don't be a part of this. End this. And I think that's part of also what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who are more desiring to see other people given justice. Blessed are those who fight for those who cannot speak for themselves. That's what will satisfy them ultimately. Because the will of God is that we would fight for those people. We would not be seeking only to fill our bellies with, with the food that we can get anywhere we want, anytime we want. But we are more hungry to see the will of God done and to see justice served for those who cannot get it for themselves. That is what is satisfying to us. That is what fills us up. That is what gives us a real sense of satisfaction. I think that it also kind of sets up this irony that he keeps showing in each of these. Blessed are the people who are hungry because they're going to be satisfied. Later on, it's blessed are those who give mercy because they're going to receive mercy, right? Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. There's irony in this because, because we would not know what mercy is if God had not first shown mercy to us. We would, not, we would not give mercy if God had not first given us mercy. If you want a better working definition of mercy, think of, think of being given something that you do not deserve. It's like, you did not work today, and yet somebody gives you a paycheck. You're like, I don't deserve this. It's being given some sort of benefit for which you have not earned it. That is salvation. That is what getting to be in the presence and family of God is. We do not deserve to be a part of this family. We have done nothing to earn God's favor. And yet, He, in His great mercy, has brought us together and made us this family. And because we have seen the mercy that he's shown us, right? Because if we got what we deserved, 
we would be in hell. We would be dead. He'd be like, I'm done with you. Right? Like, the mindset that he had right after creation when he's like, man, they've really screwed all this up. I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm done with it. That's the right answer, honestly. But yet God in His, his great mercy has, has, has decided, I'm going to do something with them anyways. I'm going to fix them anyways. I'm going to seek them out anyways. I'm going to make them into a family. My family. My people. That is mercy. And that is completely undeserved. There is nothing that we have done Mercy's painful because it means we forfeit our right to vengeance or justice on our own behalf. Like, like to show mercy to somebody else, you kind of die a little on the inside. Like, you give up that part of you. You give up the part of you that wants to, to win or the part of you that says, you've wronged me and I'm going to get something back from you for that. You forfeit that right. And that might mean that you don't get that closure that you wanted on this one thing. Or they've done this and there's no way that I can forgive them for that. But think about what Christ went through on our behalf. He didn't just die a little on the inside. He died to show us mercy. It costs something to show mercy to someone else. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to. He's saying, you've been shown mercy by God being added to this family. Likewise, it's going to cost you something, but show mercy too. Be a people who are forgiving. Be a people who, who, are, who are sacrificing their own trying to think of the right word, their own rightness, uh, you know, like their own, like, I'm right, yes, you're right, let it go, it's not worth it, or you've been told not to hold that over somebody, show them mercy, you may be thinking of something right now, even, and you're like, uh, that's not a thing that needs to be shown mercy for, they, they deserve this, exactly, but what is it that we all deserve, we're all in that same situation, and we have all been shown Such great mercy by God. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is uh, like a ridiculously high standard, right? Like you want to see God, you have to have a pure heart. I would would ask us all to raise our hands if we have a pure heart, because I would like to know which of us would be so bold. Because because here's the thing, and and I think the people hearing Jesus say this would, would understand this idea. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Like, like our hearts are not pure. So he's saying, you have to have a pure heart to see God. But yet, none of us have a pure heart. So where do we get a pure heart? Psalm 51.10 Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Only by the power of God, only by the mercy of God, can we be given a new heart, right? Uh, if you've read Ezekiel, I love it. I think it's, it's 35, right? It's 35. I'm going to say it's 35. Where he tells, talks about us, we have a heart of stone. 
like we're, we're dead. Maybe it's 36. It's, it's in the 30s. It's 35, 36, or 37. Because those are my favorite chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Somebody's going to give it to me any minute. But, but he uses this great 36. Okay. There's this great picture of us having this, this dead, lifeless heart made of stone. And he says that God is going to reach inside of us, take out that heart of stone, and it says he's going to give us a new fleshy heart, which sounds absolutely disgusting. But, but think, about, think about how important it is to actually have a heart that works, right? We, we kind of take that for granted until it stops working, and then we don't really do much else after that. But he's saying he's going to take something that has no life in it, and he's going to give you a brand new heart that works, that beats, that has life. He is the one who gives us life. He is the one who creates in us a pure heart. He is the one who makes us new and clean. So in a sense, it's saying, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see God. God is the one who brings the people into his heart, into his family, who brings people into his presence, right? Because he's the one that is giving them that heart. Go ahead and move on. Verse 9. Okay, this one's, this one's the hard one for me. This is the one that I've been growing the most in over the last few years. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Like I said, this is probably the thing that I have seen the most growth in myself since probably since we started CRC. Like when we started CRC, it's like, oh man, I've been listening to so much Mark Driscoll. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to tell everybody how it is. And, and I don't care if I ruffle feathers. They need to hear this truth. Right? That was kind of my attitude. And, and, and at a couple points since we've planted CRC along the way, perhaps my attitude did not lean toward a peaceful circumstance between me and other people. Right? Like, like it was much more likely that I would fight for my position rather than fight for peace. Rather than fight for, let's get together on this and let's be, let's be cool. But what Jesus is saying, and again, this is costing you something. Just like mercy costs you something. To be a peacemaker might cost you the win in that debate. Or or the best point in that discussion because you sense I'm about to start causing division more than I'm going to start causing understanding. Right? Like, this is only going to... This is, this is something that does not matter and is only going to lead to possibly severing a relationship or, or putting some sort of muck in a relationship in the church that's only going to make things a little bit more uncomfortable. And what Jesus is saying is, sometimes you have to sacrifice the win in order to promote this family being together and staying close and living peacefully with one another. I mean, I even thought back to, like, the fall, right? Genesis chapter 3. Like, everything's perfect, everybody's happy. Nothing's wrong. I'm sure the birds actually did sing songs and stuff, right? Everything's great. And what's the first thing that Adam and Eve noticed right after they sinned? You can, this is your chance to respond. 
They were naked. And we're like, oh, they were naked. They got clothes. No. They had never been ashamed of this because they had nothing in between them to be ashamed of. So when the sin got between them, there was no longer peace. And ever since that moment, peace has been a struggle for us. We've always been divided. We've always been covering ourselves, hiding ourselves from one another so that people don't see us for being as broken and as wicked and as sinful as we are. We try to hide those things. So there's this division among us. And what Christ is saying is as He's bringing us back together into this family, we have to fight for peace. We have to fight for this idea. The same thing that was in Acts chapter 2, right? The end of Acts chapter 2 says they had everything in common. They were all in it together. Like there was nothing to hide among one another. That's the kind of idea that I get from being a peacemaker. The idea that, that we are so fighting for unity. Fighting for each other and staying close together that we sacrifice sometimes. We sacrifice that great sarcastic point that pops into our mind. You're smiling at me. Because I do that. Right? I'll be like, ah, that's sarcastic. I shouldn't use that. But I will anyways. That's often how I respond. But what he's saying is, don't do that. Right? You have to sacrifice. It's going to cost you something to be a peacemaker. I think that kind of goes back to that idea of meekness that we were talking about. You're, you're humbly serving the other person instead to promote peace, instead of promote any sort of division. You don't want that. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I hadn't thought of it this way, and then I was reading one of my commentaries, and it made this point. Uh, in, in case you were worried that this list that Jesus has given is the requirements to get into heaven, right? Like, oh, he's giving, these are the things that you have to do in order to find favor with God. This list of works and, and actions and states of being. You have to be this so that God will like you. He's saying this verse kind of undoes that if you were worried about that. Because God's not going to say, you need to go out and get yourself beat up so that I'll like you. Like, we don't see that in Scripture. Now, what he's saying is, if you follow him, if you're a disciple, that may happen and most likely will at some point in your life. But he's not suggesting that you need to go out and try to find somebody to punch you in the face so that God will love you more. So if that's true of that verse, then that's true of the rest of these. It's not be merciful so that God will like you. It's be merciful because God has already shown you great mercy. You see the difference? So he's not saying that you need to go out and and find yourself some persecution to earn the favor of God. Instead, Jesus is just comforting the people who are committing to him, who by committing to him may in fact be signing their own death warrant, may in fact be signing themselves up for a life that's not going to be nearly as comfortable or nearly as safe. Because following Christ has a cost. There are things that you will have to face that might be more uncomfortable as a result. But what does he say? 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and in case that's not resonating with you, verse 11, he shifts from third person to second person. So, So all this time he's been talking about those or they or those people. Blessed are the disciples. And it's like, I get that. Disciples, yeah. But then he changes it. Blessed are you. So when you hear this, he's saying this to you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So in case, in case it wasn't personal enough, in case you weren't really connecting with what Jesus is calling us to here, he's saying this not just to some group of unnamed disciples, just a group of people that you can't really connect to. He's saying this to you. So how should we react when we are disliked, when we are beaten, when we are separated from the crowd, when we are singled out for the sake of the gospel? What should be our reaction? What does he say? We should rejoice. Because the results of making little of yourself for the sake of the gospel result in God making more of us than we could ever imagine. So, so what I'm not saying when I say that sentence, God making more of us than we could ever imagine, what I'm not saying is that if you have enough faith and if you're really good and if you love God and if you pray a lot, you're going to get all kinds of awesome stuff right now. This is not one of those best life now moments. This is one of those worst life now, best life later. Best life, com- because, because I don't care how good life could be now. Whatever that picture is in your mind, like, like right now, I'm just thrilled that there's not water dripping on my head, right? Like, like this is good. This is good. Because what, what he's saying is, it's going to be so much better, so much more amazing than you could even imagine later. Basically, we are just deferring our gratification. He's saying, if you you empty yourself out now for the sake of the gospel and face what comes with that, even though it may be painful, even though it may be sad, even though it may be frustrating at times, even though it may mean that you don't win a fight with somebody every now and then, what you give up now what you give up in the present will be given back to you in such a greater way when we get to be in the presence of Christ that everything else that we could get now pales in comparison. So I want us to focus on this idea of actively humbling ourselves. Or possibly putting ourselves in uncomfortable positions. Because when we leave ourselves in uncomfortable positions, that's when we find ourselves comfortably in the will of God. And we reap all the benefits that accompany being in the will of God. I don't always remember to do this but I actually have a couple of practical ways that I think that we can kind of train ourselves to do this. And I think the first one is really super easy. I say super easy. 
it's a super easy concept. It's maybe not something that we're all going to be like, yeah, let's do that. And it comes, and it comes from back here in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't fast with any sort of regularity. But when I have, I have found that on the days that I do, I am so focused on what God wants. Because I am so constantly being reminded that He is the one that I'm asking to satisfy me instead of a burger. And, and not everybody can, like, there may be some physical reason why you can't not eat for a day. But what if we as a church all decided that we're going to try to one day a week, maybe, no, I'm not saying we all need to, like, say, this is the day we're all going to fast together, but, like, pick a day in the next week and say, I'm going to not eat today. And every time I get hungry, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask God to show me what His will is for me. Or what it is that He wants me to do for the church. Or for the family of God. Or for the people of downtown Johnson City. Whatever that may be. We, we actively seek the will of God together. And some of us will be reminded we're hungry very quickly. Like, like I'm, still, I'm still hungry. But what if we did that? What if we, what if we practically tried to train ourselves to hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of just hunger and thirst for our next meal? And we take those meal times and maybe even call somebody else from the church or from your community group and be like, hey, I'm not eating lunch today. Why don't we get together and pray? Or why don't we get together and read through this portion of the Bible or something? Take that time that you normally would spend going and eating and focusing on finding the will of God. Asking God to guide us as a church. One other thing that I said that we could do is continue to speak out against injustice. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, specifically with regard to abortion. But, but where we see injustice, where we see, like we talked about earlier with like, like slavery still being present globally... We can, we can take part in saying, we are not okay with this. We can, we can do what we can to not fund industries that continue to promote slavery worldwide. We can, we can be aware that though we may feel safe in our bubble, there are people outside of our bubble who are not safe and who do not have a voice. And we as the church ought to be on the front lines continuing to say, this is not okay. This is the result of sin. And we have a message that, that directly combats this. And then don't be the person who creates discord. This is more of a state of being, but this, is more of a, this might be a thing that some of us have to train ourselves on and start actively thinking about. Think about, am I a peacemaker? Am I making peace with others or am I making things more difficult at times? And you may have to ask yourself, what about me needs to change or, or what is it that gets me in that mindset and actively combat that? Are we going to be a people who are more known for the way we fight amongst one another or the way that we live together unified around the gospel?
centered on what Christ has done for us? How are we going to be perceived? What is the world going to see? And a lot of these things aren't aren't simple. A lot of them you're like, well, this, this, this practical thing and this practical... I'm not saying all of these things are easy. Here's the thing. Salvation is free. Right? The mercy that Christ shows to us is free. But that doesn't mean it doesn't cost us something. It doesn't mean it doesn't cost us our comfort or our, or our gratification right now. It doesn't mean it doesn't cost us victory or this, this, this ability to build our own kingdom right now. Like, I'm going to build myself my own kingdom. I'm going to domineer and, and assert myself over these people that I have authority over. It costs us that. But the long term, the end goal, is so much bigger than we could possibly imagine that that ought to be what drives us. Let's pray.